Hello, and welcome to On Point, a podcast series of fresh thinking on the big topics for corporates and institutions. I'm Michelle Girard, co-head of global economics at NatWest Markets, and I'm joined today by my co-head of global economics and chief UK economist, Ross Walker. Today, we're going to give you a quick take on our latest economic outlook, and we'll discuss what we're calling the yin-yang of fiscal policy in the shape of the global recovery. So let me start with a quick update on our our global economic forecast. We have become slightly more optimistic about the global outlook since the end of June. We are now expecting a a contraction in in world growth of about 4% in 2020. It's not good, but it's up a bit from where we had expected the, uh, the depth of the decline to be in June when we thought it might be closer to 4.5%. Um, The upward revision to our forecast is really because of a better performance out of both the U.S. uh, and the euro area. The U.K. has been a a bit disappointing. When we look at the progression of growth by quarter, after a 7.4% contraction in in the second quarter, of course, due to the near shutdown of of global activity, we do expect that global growth will rebound close to 8% in in Q3, and, and, and that looks like it's V-shaped, um, but it's important to note that the level of global economic activity in the third quarter, even with that sharp rebound, is probably still 3 to 4% below its pre-virus level. And in fact, we expect that the level of activity will remain below its pre-virus level uh, until probably early 21. And, and if you think about how long it will take for for the uh, global economy to get back to the level it would have been had there never been a a COVID crisis. That could take many years into 2022 and and beyond. I think it's also probably important to point out that the the post-COVID economic performance um, around the world isn't going to be uniform. Uh, In particular, China and much much of East Asia is, is likely to emerge stronger, reflecting the fact they had solid virus case management, and also the fact that uh, they uh, that many countries in, in that part of the world are actually producers and exporters of goods that are highly demanded in the new COVID world, they, uh, personal protective equipment and, and consumer electronics um, in particular. Um, China, in fact, may be the only major uh, uh, economy to show growth in 2020, and, and by the end of 2021, China's GDP could actually be up more than 10% from where it was uh, pre-virus. So uh, clearly that region uh, is going to benefit from the strength um, of of China. In contrast, we have what we call the Anglosphere, both the U.S. and the U.K., where we expect to see economic underperformance largely because of idiosyncratic political risks. I mean, in the U.S., of course, We have not had particularly good case management, but we also have the uncertainty around the November uh, presidential elections. And depending on the outcome, you could see very different uh, paths in terms of of policy and and the uncertainty about which direction uh, we may ultimately see in in terms of the fiscal approach post-election. That could be a real headwind for the U.S. economy and potentially uh, risk assets, um, certainly through the end of this year. Now, Ross, I don't need to, to tell you, of course, about political risk. In the U.K., uh, we have the, the mother of, of all risks in, in terms of Brexit. Maybe you could give us, a, you know, kind of your thoughts about the outlook for the U.K. and, uh, and the prospects for a no-deal Brexit. 
Yeah, certainly. As, as, as you mentioned, the, the UK has been an underperformer uh, among the, the major economies during the, the COVID crisis. And whereas, as you say, we nudged up our global GDP forecasts, we, we moved in the other direction in the UK uh, on the back of a, a weaker than expected second quarter. And also some evidence that as we move through the third quarter, uh, the economy is, is losing a little bit more momentum a little bit earlier than, than we had expected. Um, some of this, as, as you mentioned, may well relate to Brexit uncertainties. There's still, there's still little tangible evidence of any breakthrough. And actually, sentiment around Brexit has swung quite dramatically uh, over the last sort of month or so. Obviously, the UK government uh, threatening to renege on parts of the withdrawal agreement was a a clear negative signal. I think you started to see some genuine expectation of no deal start to build in. Um, more recently, the, the mood music has been a little bit better. But nevertheless, I, I think the very nature of the, the uncertainty around this process uh, means that it will inevitably weigh on real economy business decisions, including business investment. And so going forward, that's one of the components of GDP that we expect to remain a bit more subdued, a bit more hesitant in the UK than perhaps uh, in, in some other economies. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why we have a, a slightly weaker profile uh, for the UK economy over the next six to 12 months than you would see, for example, in the US or, or the Euro area. Um, when we talk about the, you know, the, the risks of, of Brexit, maybe you can give us your, your sort of odds on, on how you think it might uh, you know, the odds associated with some of the various scenarios? Yeah, so I mean, we, try to, uh, we try to change our, our basic probabilities on the, the outcomes, deal or no deal, um, as, as little as possible. Um, and I, I would say as of today, we would put the probability of, of a deal at around 65%, maybe even a little bit higher, um, the next week or so will be quite important. We've got a key EU Council summit uh, on the 15th and 16th of October. So although I don't think at that point we will see a, a formal agreed trade deal text emerging, I think you could potentially see a couple of significant steps towards that. So uh, some evidence of progress is, is certainly possible around that EU summit. And so for us, a deal remains the most likely outcome. Um, primarily because it is in, in both sides' interests to avoid the, the inconveniences of a WTO uh, trading arrangement. Uh, and I, I, think, I think ultimately we will get there, but it is, I think this process will in all likelihood run to the wire. And so in practical terms, perhaps not seeing a, a formal trade deal surfacing until well into November, a ratification process, uh, not until December. And again, as I say, that could have the effect of, of weighing on, on economic activity as, as certain sectors, particularly parts of manufacturing, distribution, food production. Some of the most immediately affected sectors um, are still uh, having to, to make sort of last minute preparations, if you like. So, so I think there will still be some disruption from the process, even if there is a deal. And ultimately, you know, the deal that if it does indeed surface, I, I think will be quite limited in scope. It probably won't run much beyond a basic zero tariff, zero quota trading goods deal. So I, I, I want to broaden out our discussion a, a bit to 
to kind of thinking about uh, fiscal policy um, and the role that it's played here in the uh, COVID-19 crisis. It's, it's been very different, obviously, than it has been or than we saw during the global financial crisis. I mean, fiscal policy has now been restored as sort of the principal macroeconomic uh, policy lever. And, and, and you kind of, you know, you've talked about the fact that, that you know, it, it's likely to remain the case that fiscal policy will remain expansive uh, well into the future, a key difference between what we saw uh, in the post-COVID, um, sorry, the post-global financial crisis period. Maybe you can talk a little bit about um, what you think uh, that that might mean. I mean, obviously, it's a good thing to have expansive fiscal policy uh, when you're countering an economic downturn, but can there be too much of a good thing? What, what's your concerns around that? Yes, I think there is you know, what economists sometimes call a, a time inconsistency. In other words, a policy that is quite well targeted and appropriate for the immediate juncture and, and for a short period might ultimately cause problems down the line. I, I think that's that's probably where, where we are with, with fiscal policy. Um, and, and that's not because there is something innately dangerous about fiscal expansion. I think exactly as you say, with with monetary policy having, to some degree, having having hit the buffers, um, it, it seems sensible if there is a shortfall of private sector demand for for fiscal stimulus to to try to to fill that gap. I think the concern is going to be that the combination of really unprecedented amounts of fiscal stimulus in the current year, moving over say a three to four year cycle beyond the current year. We, we, we expect to see larger, more persistent deficits. Um, we, we think these will be required to, to a large degree to support the economy through its post-COVID shock period. But then you run into what I think are essentially political risks and, and whether fiscal policy will be genuinely counter-cyclical. In other words, once we, we enter an upswing, whether we will actually see sufficient restraint and reining in of that stimulative expenditure or, or, or tax cuts. And the point here is, and, and we called our, our fiscal notes yin and yang, and, and, and the notion is that you, in order to have the, the yang of expansionary fiscal policy, you also need to have the, the yin of fiscal constraint during the, the good times. And I, I think there's a question over whether those those, those, those good times will be will be too elusive, or whether political pressures will simply prevent a a fiscal tightening, and, and that's how we see the medium term risks. So, what what, what begins as a uh, a well targeted, appropriate policy response, as the contains within it the the risk that it, it 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 eventually runs out of control, and you end up either generating inflation. Um, so that would be a sort of, if you like, a a form of a a 1970s rerun, or whether we run into some form of other fiscal or macroeconomic crisis or just run out of, of, of headroom for further fiscal expansion were the, the wider economy to deteriorate. I mean, just quickly, can I ask you, you know, you mentioned inflation, and, and there has been a shift on the monetary side as well in terms of changing central bank reaction functions. I know you see the 
the threat of, uh, you know, of protectionism as well as an inflation risk. Just quickly, can you can you speak a bit about sort of uh, the monetary policy side and even some of the feedback loop there from fiscal policy? Yes. Yeah, so the role of monetary policy, we think, is 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 changing. If you look at the earlier phases of QE, it could be presented as a, a more direct, purer monetary policy response. So central banks came in, they created cash reserves, they used those those reserves to buy to buy bonds and to force down interest rates in the market. That's a, a pure monetary policy action. But with interest rates at such low levels, clearly that transmission mechanism, that channel is is not as powerful. And so today it seems to us that QE, quantitative easing, is operating primarily through supporting this fiscal expansion, running in parallel to the fiscal expansion. So exactly as you said earlier, we see fiscal policy as the main macroeconomic policy lever supporting demand, but it also has this backup role from ongoing central bank QE. And without that QE, it's, it's probably doubtful that governments would be able to to run these deficits but to the earlier discussion you know what ultimately stops that it will be inflation picking up and where you can't run these stimulative settings for both monetary and fiscal i mean on our forecasts that inflation pickup is still several years away it's beyond our forecast horizon of the end of 2021 but you know certainly as we go through this decade middle second half of this decade inflation risks could could certainly be building and it could could clearly be a key theme for for financial markets and and for policymakers. Well, you've given us a lot to to think about. I mean, clearly the unprecedented actions that we've seen taken on both the fiscal and monetary side to support the the economy, uh, the global economy, uh, has been, you know, appropriate. But you you make some very good points uh, about the medium-term risk that it poses. poses. Uh, and in any case, I, I hope you have enjoyed this uh, episode of On Point. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes. 